Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Now, right now, we're going to hear a conversation from the Steiner Show archives. I spoke with Danny McLean, who's a freelance reporter and fellow at the Nation Institute. McLean, contributing writer for The Nation magazine, fellow at the Nation Institute, where she focuses on race and reproductive justice. Her recent article caught our attention that was sent to us, uh, The Birth Control Revolution, uh, that will appears in the November 16th edition of The Nation. And Danny, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, and you all can join us here. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Comment on the Mark Steiner Facebook page. Send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. Um, so, and I, I was really, really was really interested in this article because the, the very first show that we did in 1993, in March the 3rd, mm-hmm. <laughs> on the Mark Steiner Show, our very first program, was a raging debate on Norplant. Yeah. That was our very first program ever. Wow. So So here we are. History repeating itself, some would say. Exactly. So you begin talking about LARC, which is the long-acting reversible contraceptive methods. So talk talk a bit about what what got you to write this article and what, what what people are wrestling with here. Right. So I had been seeing all of these... Uh, newspaper articles about um, the IUD and about these pilot programs in both St. Louis and statewide in Colorado, um, in which healthcare providers and researchers were making LARC. um, And LARC does stand for long-acting reversible contraception, and it refers to the IUD uh, and also hormonal implants. So uh, in St. Louis and Colorado, there were these public health programs where these types of birth control were being made available either for free or for very low cost um, to low-income women. And the articles that I uh, was reading were really celebratory. They were all talking about, um, you know, how effective these forms of birth control are. They're 99% effective. Um, they're set it, what's called a set it and forget it method, meaning that it's placed in your body by a healthcare provider. And then the user doesn't have to do anything, doesn't have to remember to take a pill every day or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So these articles were talking about, they were very laudatory. They were t- you know, talking about how successful the, um, the lark, uh, the larks were, and also how, um, unintended pregnancy rates were, were dropping dramatically um, in the places where these pilot programs were happening. Um, so, for example, in, for example, in Colorado, the teen birth rate and the teen abortion rate both dropped by nearly half over the course of five years. Um, but I was also hearing uh, comments and, you know, these conversations that were happening in reproductive justice circles among women of color organizers who I was talking to, who, while they were excited about the possibility of more people having access to the IUD and the hormonal implant, because they're very, these are very expensive birth control methods, while these reproductive justice advocates were interested in kind of access, expanded access, they had concerns about what these forms of birth control mean in the larger context of reproductive coercion that women of color, particularly black and Latina, have experienced over the years. So it felt like this very complicated conversation about birth control, and I wanted to learn more. So let, let, let me pick it up right there. I mean, I think that what you just said about reproductive coercion, right, which is a, a lot of people you interviewed in, in the, for this article talked about that issue on, 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 on varying levels, um, and one of the things, again, I was, and I, 
when I said we started our first show ever in 1993 on Norplant, that was part of the issue. The issue was, A, the mistrust that the black community and communities of color have uh, about birth control because uh, seeing it as a way to control population, forced sterilization that, like, as you mentioned in the article, happened right. in the California prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that, and that this, I mean, so, so the contradiction with that and the fact that, that people even within communities of color have been struggling with getting control of the teenage birth rate so right. that young women have a chance to a life. And so, I mean, this, so there, there are real contradictions here. So talk about how you parse that out. I mean, those, these are both very real. Yeah, they are both very real. So just for your listeners who might not be familiar with the Norplant controversy, um, it's interesting because I did read that Baltimore was one of the places yes. where um, where teenagers were, you know, where Norplants were, Norplant was subsidized for teenagers. So that's fascinating. That was your first show. Yeah. So um, Norplant was a hormonal implant that was uh, in a capsule form that was inserted beneath the skin of a woman's arm by a healthcare provider. And in 1990, just days after the FDA approved its use, um, there was an editorial in the Philadelphia Inquirer um, that suggested that um, poor women, that well, receipt of welfare benefits should be tied to, um, should be conditional on the use of Norplant. And, um, you know, said outright that it could be used in order to, quote, reduce the underclass. And so it set off this firestorm. Right. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think that there is a, it, there's a, as you mentioned, you know, I think the desire to reduce the burden is not just the desire that, like, white people have for communities of color, right? I mean, this is, you know... Um, I think we worry about um, young people having uh, opportunities, although even that is really complex. So I talked to, you know, this this gets at this larger conversation about teen pregnancy and really like how much does a young person's, um, how much, how many more opportunities does a young person have if she delays first birth? So I talked to this public health researcher who told me that, um, the research says that if a, a woman who has a child before the age of 18 um, is likely to have just eight months to two years less education than a woman who waits until she's older. So there, there's also this belief that delaying, um, ch- del- delaying childbirth doesn't necessarily incre- increase your life chances that much. Because if you're poor, um, you know, you have a whole lot of other issues going on that are going to maybe keep you from going to college or going to keep you from getting that high paying job. So even that is a little bit, you know, complex. This kind of opens into this whole other conversation about um, pregnant and parenting teens and really are they, you know, are they really at that much more of a disadvantage than a young woman who's, say, 24 who's also, you know, living in an impoverished situation. So anyway, this, um, you know, I think that, like I said, that this conversation is uh, complicated in that it does speak to the fact that a lot of young people want access to this, um, you know, to an IUD, which can run you upwards of $500. Um, but um, there are also concerns among these advocates that perhaps there's, you know, something coercive going on. So, I mean, this is, again, I mean, part of what you wrestle here with is, I mean, the reality that um, that poor women, especially poor young women, don't have real access to serious birth control. 
Mm-hmm. And and then we have people arguing all the time, and you've been on the show when this happened before, where people call in or are in the room debating the fact that ab- abortion is a quote unquote Holocaust against black children, right? Right. And so, but and so when, whatever you feel about the right of women to choose an abortion, one of the issues here is access to birth control, is allowing women to have control over their lives and make the decisions they want to make about whether or not to have sex and whether or not to have babies. That's absolutely right. I mean, it was. Fascinating. I talked to, um, you know, I talked to, um, I talked to at least one young woman who was so excited about. Actually, several who were so excited that you know they could get an IUD and that it would be covered by the Affordable Care Act. Um, these are black young women who, you know, had maybe you know the the birth control b- pill didn't work for them either because the hormones messed with their systems or um, you know they didn't feel they didn't, you know, condoms weren't working for their relationships for, for whatever reasons. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that part of what part of what's important in this conversation is that a lot of people are clamoring for access to the IUD. There's a study out of um, Texas. I talked to a health researcher who did a study out of Texas um, and um there were, you know, so these women were interviewed right after they gave birth and they all said that they were sure that they didn't want to have another child for at least two years. And so they went back, the researchers went back and talked to them and, um, they were asked what form of birth control that they were using. And a third of them said they'd like to be using a long acting reversible method, like an IUD or implant. Um, but only 13% of them were actually using that type of birth control. And the reason is that, um, the cost was putting it out of reach. Um, the women who wanted them but couldn't get them, their, their insurance wouldn't cover it, or they were having a really hard time finding a healthcare provider who was knowledgeable enough about how to insert an IUD and felt comfortable doing it. So that's another thing that came out of this. My reporting for this story is there's there's also this gap between you know who wants these forms of birth control and who's able to get them. What you see is that higher income. Um, and I think the set is something like women with uh, household, household incomes over $77,000 are much more likely to be using, you know, an IUD or an, uh, not an implant, but an IUD specifically um, than, than lower income women. So, so here's, I mean, here's part of the issue here. And I, I'm curious about the, the, how these two come together. I was about to mention from your article the fact that women in households greater than 75000 a year are 11 times more likely to use yeah. this LARC, this um, this yep. long-acting reversible contraceptive method than incomes with less than ten thousand dollars. Yes, thank you. Right, yep. and so, I mean that the, a that's about access. It's yes. also also about the 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 the, the kind of um, choices that women, working class and poor working class women, are given in this country. Mm-hmm. That you know, if you have a private doctor, he, he or she is your OBGYN. You go see that that person. They, because they're your private doctor, they're going to give you all this time and conversation about what it is, what you, the, most of them would, about what your choices are. Right, exactly. But many poor men don't get that. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting. A doctor that I talked to out of California was telling me to look at um, how high rates of getting one's tubes tied are among black women. So that is certainly a wow. long-acting form of contraception, but it's not reversible, right? So, um, you know... There's this idea that like, yeah, as you said, people with higher incomes um, and I'm conflating race and, 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 and you know, class here. But yes, right. people with with higher incomes are given these um, these options kind of told about 
these array of of options, whereas lower income people are, you know, um, often from my reporting, you know, what I found was steered in a particular in a particular direction. It's also the question, I think, that even though where this has happened in Colorado, that birth rates for young women have gone down um, Mm -hmm. and women are now controlling their lives about having children when they want to have children. And also abortions have gone down because of the same thing because women can have to say where they want to go, that the, the, the other part of this, though, is that another huge problem um, is RSTDs. Right. Right? And, of course, the, the, the danger is a lot of young people, as I've heard young women say to me not long ago, oh, it's okay, you know, um, it, it, because they, we, we can just get rid of it the next day. Yeah. Right? This un, un, not understanding about what STDs are doing, especially in working class poor and especially in black and brown communities. That was certainly something that I was, you know, when I started this story, there were just kind of there were these questions um, bouncing around in my head. So I was wondering, OK, if you subsidize insertion of an IUD, is removal also subsidized? It was one question I was kind of curious ah, about. Interesting. The other, yes. My other question was like, OK, well. And uh, an IUD, you know, is not a barrier method. So are we, as we're encouraging, um, as we're making IUDs more widely available and hormonal implants more widely available, are we also, are healthcare providers also encouraging young people to to use condoms along with them? Um, this is particularly an important issue when you, um, when you look at young people of color, particularly black young people. So um, the chlamydia rate for young black women is five times that of their white counterparts. Um, among young people between the ages of 13 and 24, black youth account for 57% of all new HIV infections. So, you know, it's one thing to give a young woman a birth control method, an IUD that's 99% effective, but if you're not also educating her around how to protect herself from STIs, you know, this creates a problem. And so, um, the, you know, I, I talked to basically the response I got from doctors when I raised this question was that, well, you know, it's just part of the, it becomes part of the counseling. You, you tell the young person, this is going to keep you from getting pregnant, but let's also talk about how to stay safe in terms of, um, you know, staying, um, making sure that you're protecting yourself from chlamydia and gonorrhea and, and HIV. Let me open the phones here. Your, your thoughts as we talk to Danny McLean about her latest piece that she just wrote for The Nation, uh, which is called The Birth Control Revolution, 410-319-8888 is the number here. Uh, and uh, let's go to the first caller up is Kenneth. You're on the air. Welcome. How are you doing, Mark? Very well. Good morning. Thanks for letting me on your show. Um, well, we have to do something. Uh, and, and hello to your guest. We have to do something uh, because I don't know what it is with young girls, black and white, uh, having babies at an alarming rate. I don't know if it's a contest or a stigma, personal stigma, a personal desire that they have, or they can be coerced or something going on in their families. But these young girls are homeless, you know? They're homeless and they don't have anywhere. They're, they're, when you're homeless, sometimes you don't know where to go when you're homeless. Uh, I find myself giving directions to places like uh, uh, healthcare for the homeless, uh, my sister's place, right, and various places like that. Yeah, I mean it's a real Mark. It's a real uh, it's a real uh, problem, uh, and these young people are afraid 
uh, young girl had a baby in the carriage, one in her stomach, one in her hand, you know, they come out of the library. And I'm like, you know, she's wanted to know where she could get something to eat. So I, I interviewed her. I said, listen, how did you get like this? And right. sometimes they'll talk and sometimes they don't want to talk. <clears throat> well, I'm sure they don't. I mean, I, I th- but I think this has been an, an issue for, again, Danny has been, this is one of the things that's been an issue for a long time, which is that the, 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 the teen pregnancy rate, which actually has been going down, not up. Right. It's actually at record lows. Yeah, it's, right. Exactly. Um, and, but, but clearly still an issue. Yes, clearly still an issue. Um, and, you know, but I think, I think it's important to, um, thank, thank you to your caller for, for his questions yes. and comments. I mean, yeah. I think it's important to, you know, acknowledge that teen birth rates are at record lows and that has to do with, um, it has to do with expanded access to birth control. And it's also about, you know, to be honest, it's about protecting access to, to abortion. Um, I mean, we have to look at, um, we have to look at the making sure that young women have um, various options so they can, you know, decide what is going to work best for them in any given situation. But I, I do think that, you know, um, education <laughs> both sexual health education, but also just education, having access to, um, you know, an education that makes you feel like your life is going to go somewhere. I mean, just from a, you know, a personal anecdote, you know, I, um, you know, I, I went to a high school where I had, you know, access to great courses that, you know, made me feel like I was college bound and I had support both mm-hmm. from my family and my teachers. And that I, it was always very clear to me that having a child would take me off track from the goals that I had. So I think when we talk, when we have these conversations about teen pregnancy and, and we want to make sure not to veer into the realm of like, tell these girls to keep their legs closed. Right. I think the, the, the more important thing is, are we providing our young people with options that make them feel like their lives can be full and like they can do things before they start their families? Let me reopen the phones of 410-319-8888. Jacqueline, line two, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi. Uh, thanks. This is Jackie from Power Inside. Hey, and Jackie. How are you? Good. So this is such an important conversation, and I, I'm glad that, you know, the Norplant experience is being brought up. So... Norplant was also being provided in the Baltimore City Detention Center, and the detainees actually called the provider, the Norplant lady. She was one of the only um, counselors who would talk to women one-on-one, but what happened was Norplant was being inserted in the detention center, but when women got out, there was very limited access to health care, and women were walking around Baltimore City with Norplant in, in them for 5 and 10 and 12 and 15 years. And so my concern about LARC is if it is not done in the context of comprehensive reproductive care and health care and working on the other <clears throat> structural issues that support and sustain women, we are going to repeat the Norplant experience. And there are some who would have us putting LARC back in the detention center. But I want people to be very, very mindful of the pitfalls of doing that. That's a really interesting and very powerful point. How would you respond, Danny? 
I think that that's, a, it's, I mean, you nailed it. I think that's so important. I mean, so a book that I recommend to your readers who are interested in this issue is, um, it's a book called Killing the Black Body by a legal scholar um, named Dorothy Roberts. She's at University of Pennsylvania. And her book is really about the history of reproductive coercion. And she spends quite a long time talking about Norplant. Um, and I, I read her closely for the sections of my piece that are about Norplant. And she did talk about um, the terrible side effects that were suffered by women who had Norplant inserted on the state's dime. And um, so this included, you know, excessive bleeding, pain, infection, um, and exactly what your caller said, you know, the the capsule being left in for way too long because people were having a hard time finding a provider who would remove it. Or just, you know, they, they're not in, they weren't in uh, consistent contact with do- with a doctor. And so it wasn't even something that you know, was, was, um, kind of easy to negotiate. And I think, um, you know, we, some would say that the affordable care act is at least, you know, in States where Medicaid has been expanded, you know, that we, that low income people have greater access to healthcare and that hopefully we'll begin to see people having, uh, greater contact, greater consistent contact with healthcare providers, but we don't know yet. And I think, your caller is right. I mean, this is a concern if, if there's this kind of like enthusiasm around LARC and around, you know, bringing down birth, unintended birth rates and bringing down the abortion rate. So let's make LARC available. Um, it's a, it's a kind of laser focus, right? It's a kind of narrow focus on just one aspect of a person's healthcare needs. And we do run great risk if we don't think about that person's, you know, the, the kind of totality of that person's healthcare needs. So we turn to the phones of 410-319-8888. Thanks so much, Jackie, and I really appreciate the response as well. Uh, Linda, you're on the air, line one. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Linda. I really uh, appreciate the conversation that you're having today. Um, I think we have to also understand that when we're working with young people, we have to um, we have to know that their lives encompass more. Their lives encompass. Okay. Their lives encompass more than uh, their sexual activity. There have to be other options open to them. Our educational systems are not providing them with, uh, with the direction, with the guidance, with the support that they need. Um, and along with that education also comes the awareness of self, the awareness of the body, the awareness of, of developing relationships. We have to be able to educate our people from a holistic perspective and not just narrow our focus on whether or not they're sexually active. I believe if we give young people a holistic education and, and greater opportunities in the society, they have less of a, of a propensity to um, make decisions that are going to have uh, detrimental long-range effects for them. Uh, anyone, we have only about a minute left, but I'd like you to really respond as well as you can to what Linda was I would just up. completely agree. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I talked to a young woman. She was 15 when she had her baby, and um, she went in for a, a, an appointment with her OBGYN two weeks after giving birth. And the doctor just immediately said, I've already scheduled an appointment for you to get an IUD in. And the, this young woman, um, her name is Gloria Malone. I hope you check out my story and read more about her. She's fascinating. Um, she yes. really said, you know, I wish someone, I wasn't, no one, she didn't, this doctor didn't talk, have a broader conversation with me. 
Um, the doctor just said I was going to get an IUD. You know, there. You know, think about a 15-year-old who has just given birth two weeks prior. There are so many things that I would want to know. I'm not a doctor, but that I would want to know about how that young person is doing more broadly. And instead, um, from Gloria's perspective, this doctor was just very narrowly focused on making sure that she didn't have any more babies anytime soon. And so I would just really agree with your caller um, that, you know, as as communities in general, we should be thinking more broadly about supporting our young people. But also, I think there's a place for healthcare providers who interface regularly with young people to to kind of take into consideration who they are as human beings. You know, I talked to another young woman, Natasha Viana, who had her baby at 17, and she said she's a young Latina woman who gave birth in Boston, and she said she was so aware of the fact that when she would go in for pre and postnatal care, all the other young women there were young Latinas like her and all the healthcare providers, the nurses, the doctors were white. And she said, you know, I just want, I wanted someone. I, I, I wondered if these people were aware of the, all, all the assumptions that they were making of me, uh, about me. And she said, I just wanted people to look at me and think of me as a human, not just data. And I thought that was so powerful. It was extremely powerful, as was the piece you wrote. Uh, Dana McLean's piece, The Birth Control Revolution, will be will attached to it on our website, soundshow.org. Uh, fellow with the Nation Institute and contributing writer for the Nation. Danny, once again, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on the air. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.